0: Let's pray again together. God, I pray that those songs would be an amen, that we would, our lives would be an amen, that it would be so, that we would live these things out that we sing. Lord, I pray for this people. They've came today to hear a word from you. Lord, I pray the things that I say are not of you. Let them fall to the floor. God, but I pray that you lead us by your spirit and you speak powerfully to our hearts. Lord, we need you, especially as we deal with hard topics. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 3, 8. And again, we're picking up in this series called Living for What Lasts, because we know the only thing that lasts are the things we do for the kingdom of God, Amen. Amen. The kingdom will be the only thing that remains, and I love how God works things out. Um, our passage this week, it it didn't, we didn't plan it this way. This is just where God made it fall. It's about do, it's about suffering for doing good, and this week in church history is a moment where we stop and we remember those who suffered for doing good for jesus we stop and we remember those who suffered for the faith november 1st is called all saints day it was established in 609 a.d that's a long time ago and it's because from the beginning of the church the church has been persecuted the day started before on the 31st with a a festival, a feast, not a festival, but a feast in remembrance of, of these people. Why would the church celebrate the lives of those who died for their beliefs that Jesus was the only way to heaven? Why would we stop and spend time thinking about that? And it's because God has always used the life of the martyrs, those who died for Jesus, to accomplish his purposes. The history of the church is a road filled with the blood and persecution of the people of God. Tertullian, he's an early church father, he once said, the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. Everywhere where the blood of Christians has been spilled, God has used those people and their lives in those places to be the seed to grow the church. He's used their sacrifice in those places to grow the church. Jesus says in John 12, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Our passage this morning is talking about a life lived that dies to self. A life that dies to self so that we can be a witness for Jesus, dying to self Proves to the world That Jesus is alive in you The principle for us today is Death in us means life for others Death in us means life for others We're, we're not going to go share our faith If we're seeking our own best interest, right? We got something else to do We're not going to do the things that God has called us to do Unless we die to self And pursue the things of God Peter gives us a clear picture of how we are to live our lives while living in a society that's evil. The language that we've used all the way through, that Peter's used, is talking to the called out. And those who he's called out, he's called out to live in holiness as a witness to Jesus. So let's, uh, if you're a note taker, here's what's true. This is the overarching principle. God desires our holiness even in our suffering. God desires our holiness even in our suffering. We don't have a pass to not walk in holiness when we're suffering. So what do we do? Our holiness in good times and in suffering is the witness of Christ in you. The way that you live is the witness that Jesus Christ is alive in you. So when suffering comes and persecution comes, we still have to suffer and walk in holiness. So let's look at our text. It's a long text this morning. We'll start in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called, that you might obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and sees good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart honor Christ as the Lord, as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. I'm just a pastor's note right here. If you're an underliner, underline that. Do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, your good behavior in Christ they will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. So first we'll look at verses 8 and 9, and this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. And we're going to look at the expectation of Christian conduct. Remember, context, when you're reading the Bible, Jesus is king. But context is king, because context is going to let you understand what King Jesus is telling you. So here's the context of what we've already looked at in the book of Peter. Peter is using the, 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 the suffering of Christ as the template for how we are to live our lives. First, he talks about Christians all Christians, and how we are to relate to government, even in evil government. Then he goes on to talk about Christians who are slaves, how they are to relate to their masters. He, uh, he centers all this around Jesus and his suffering. Then he flows out of that and he tells us to walk the way of Christ. And He then talks to wives, how they are to relate to their husbands, how unbelieving wives are to or I'm sorry, how believing wives are to relate to their unbelieving husbands. Last week we looked at how husbands are to, in Christ, walk as Christ walked, how they are to relate to their wives. But now he's, he's talking to all believers, and he says, this is the disposition that all believers are to hold at all times. And it's a high calling, and the only w- way that we can do this is if we walk in the Spirit. Because the way we w- uh, walk in the Spirit, it bears witness to the world that Jesus Christ is alive. So, in verse 8 and 9, we're going to be given attributes of a believer and we're going to spend each t- uh, time looking at each one of these, okay? So the first one we're going to look at is in verse 8, uh, live in harmony. The text says to, to Live in a unity of mind. I think a better translation of that word, the most common translation of that word, is harmony. We are to have harmony of mind. We are to live in harmony with those inside the church. If you cannot live in harmony with people inside the church, that should be a revelation to you that should be a warning to you about what sin has done to your soul your inability to walk in harmony your inability to walk in unity reveals how your soul has been corroded 1 John 4:20 says if anyone says i love god and hates his brother he is a liar For he does not love his brother whom he sees. He cannot love God who he hasn't seen. Your inability to, to, or I'm sorry, your ability to live in unity with the body of Christ is a testimony to you and to the church that you are a believer That's what the whole book of 1 John is about, by the way. He gives you three proofs that you're a believer, and he talks about them like 65 times over and over and over. Proof one is you love God. Proof two is you obey God's commandments. Proof three, you love the brothers and sisters of the church. So, what does it mean if you cannot live in harmony? What does it mean if you struggle with unity? It means you must die to yourself. If you're not willing to die to yourself, it probably means you're not really a believer and you're just a cultural Christian. You must die to yourself. You must die to your gr- grudges. You must die to your pride. You must die to your jealousy. And this is a big one for believers. And this is one that we find in the, um, you know, the, the model prayer. You must die to your inability to forgive. Believers must forgive. That is one of the hallmarks of being a believer in Jesus Christ. We forgive as we've been forgiven. You have to die to yourself. Death in us means life for others. One of the greatest apologetics, one of the greatest proofs to the world that Jesus is alive is if the church lives in harmony with itself. If the church walks in unity. So many people say, I don't want any part of that church. Do you see how they treat one another? You have to die to yourself so that others might live. So that you get a foot in the door and can share the gospel. Your inability to to live in harmony or unity of mind with the church is the thing that is keeping those who are close to you probably from coming to the church. You go home and you trash the church. Can you believe Bobby Sue didn't, didn't uh, put my plate forward when it was time for the Thanksgiving meal? Can you believe that uh, somebody challenged me on my, my church attendance? Can you believe? And you just sit there and you just trash the people of God. Why in the world would a person not of God want to be in that place? Philippians 2, 3 says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Jesus Christ. Paul, in that passage, he tells us, How Jesus brought life into the world, and that we're to model this right there. That's that's what he's telling us to do, that we are to model Jesus' actions. Jesus, in, in Philippians 2, tells us that he was equal to God, he is equal to God, yet he submitted to God, he died to his rights of reigning on the throne, he came to earth. And he died so that others might live. He counted others more significant than himself, so he died to his rights so that others might find life. If you're going to live in unity, you have to die to self. If you're going to live for Christ, you have to die to self. If you want to be used for others to find Jesus... Do you want to be used by God for others to find Jesus? Can I get an amen or an ouch? Amen. Amen. We do, right? If you want to be used for others to find Jesus, you have to die to self. The daily death of dying to self is where others will find life. Death in us means life for others. God knows that the church is going to be prone to division. Those 13 letters of Paul, that's what it's about. That's one of the the main themes of this book, not having division. And here's the thing, church member, don't be surprised when the people of God sin against you because we are all still sinners. We're sanctified, we're trying, but church is a collision of sinners. We're all sinners. We're all coming into this place. We all got things we think are right. And we're going to sin against each other. But we have to forgive. We have to move on. That's why Peter tells us next, I think the logic flows, that we are to live in sympathy. Look at verse 8. Now, if you do a word study on sympathy, what you're going to find is the, the earliest idea of sympathy means to suffer with. To suffer with. And we're not going to suffer with anyone that we don't love. Romans 12, 15 says, weep for those who weep. Biblical sympathy is not asking you, like what, how, we, how we try to say it in the modern way, to feel what they feel. Biblical sympathy is calling you to love them in and through their suffering. And just a, little, just a little aside, have you ever had a, an animal that was injured? Cut on its leg, and you try to, to patch it up or to look at it? What's the animal do? It bites, it reacts, because it's hurt. Sometimes when people are suffering and you lean in, you're going to get teeth marks on you. It's because they're hurt. It's nothing against you. We're to suffer with. We're to suffer through, and we can only do that when we love. And this suffering here is talking about suffering of believers who are being persecuted. Okay? So what many of these people in the church that Peter he's writing to, this, this letter is for the purpose of how people are to live through suffering. The suffering of persecution. They're being persecuted with the loss of income, with the loss of life, with the loss of homes. So suffering with them in a biblical sense isn't like, hey, your, your, your husband was just executed for Jesus. I feel with you. No! When when brothers and sisters start being persecuted and the husband dies for the faith, the church needs to pony up and help take care of them. When somebody is persecuted, this happens all over the world right now, by the way, and it was happening then, uh, some pagan comes along and burns down your business. We need to help. We need to suffer with them. We need to help them get back. When when, uh, somebody comes and burns down their home just because they're a believer... We need to clear some stuff out of a room. And we want to we take this and make it apply to all other things. Yeah, it does. It, we can make it apply to somebody who's just down on their luck. But this isn't talking about somebody who's not paying their bills because they're derelict. This is talking about someone who is suffering because of what they believe. We're to suffer with them. Our situation might look different, but we are to live in sympathy with other people. And what's the thing that is required for us to live this way? Love. Look at verse 8. That's the next one that follows. We're to live with love. Love from one another. Love that dies to self. Everything in verse 8 builds to this. And everything that comes after this flows from this. That we are to live with brotherly love. This love isn't something we can ever fully know with someone who's not a believer, because this love is a divine love that comes from God, that he empowers us to walk with other people in their suffering. In Christ, we are to be bonded tighter than family, because we've been bonded by the blood of the Lamb. We've talked at length so far in this book about brotherly love, so I'm not going to go much further into it. But you need to understand brotherly love is something that is given by God, and we are to exercise it by dying to self, putting away our pride, saying, God, I can't do this without you. Please love through me. We can't love without total dependence on God. Let's look now at verse 8 again. We're told to live with a tender heart. In some men, it's been driven into them that being tender hearted is somehow unmasculine. And I would say to be tender hearted is to model the Christ. Jesus is the greatest man, Jesus is the picture of masculinity. And Jesus, we see him filled with compassion to those who are hurting. When Jesus sees Mary and Martha the morning, that, uh, morning because of Lazarus, everybody know the shortest passage in Scripture. What does he do? Jesus wept. I'm proud of, like, people know they're, like, we got Bible memorized all day long. Jesus wept. Jesus already knew he was dead. Jesus already knew that he was going to bring him back to life. It didn't surprise Jesus. Why did Jesus weep? because he was tender-hearted to those he loved that he saw mourning. A tender heart is praised in the Bible, but a hard heart is condemned. What do we know about Pharaoh? What happened to his heart? He was a hard heart. The people who rejected Jesus in Matthew 13, 15, it tells us they had a hard heart. We need to see people like Jesus sees people. And we need to be tender hearted and able to love them with brotherly, brotherly affection because we are in this new family of God. A tender heart requires death to pride. A tender heart requires death to pride because a tender heart's going to require you to be vulnerable in front of somebody. But a tender heart and compassion, that when, when the world sees us loving each other well, like everybody's looking for a place. Everybody's trying to be loved. That's why there's uh, all these clubs and uh, events and everybody wants to be a part of something. We have the greatest thing in the world to be a part of. And by the way we love each other, it should be a testimony, it should be a light on a hill that draws them like a moth to the flame. But we have to die to pride. Death in us means life for others. Well, what's the the logical next step to dying to to pride? Live with a humble mind. Look at verse 8. Living with a humble mind, I think this is one of those things that's super misunderstood. It doesn't mean to think less of yourself. So let's imagine we're on a plane, and you're a pilot, okay? But you're not flying the plane, you're just on the plane. And the plane starts, uh, somebody comes over the thing, you know, how? You, why is it so unclear? It's like they're eating the microphone. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Ah, there's a, so the... it's announced that there's a medical emergency and it's a freak deal and both the pilots are incapacitated. And if anybody is a pilot, would you please come to the front? It's not humility to go, no, I'm just gonna stay in my seat. Humility doesn't mean not recognizing what you're good at. Humility is thinking other people important. Humility is seeking other people's interest. Jesus knew he was God, but Jesus was humble. And it wasn't a humble brag for him to tell people he was God. Going back to Philippians 2:3. do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, this is what humility does. Humility counts others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. Humility does not deny taking care of yourself. But humility also requires you to look to see what other people need. Humility is counting people as significant. It's seeking other people's well-being. It's living with a humble mind and And living with a humble mind, it's one of these things much easier said than done, right? Living with a humble mind is going to require, as you pursue it, lots of repentance. And that's okay too, right? We're not going to walk this way of humility, though, without clinging to God for divine love to be living through us and working through us. It's just an impossibility. So let's look at verse 9. We're to live in confidence. We're to live in a confidence, rather. Verse 9 gives us a little more clarity to, to this called-out life and to where we're to find a life of blessing. Let's read our passage in verse 9. "'Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing.'" Does that sound familiar, those of you who have been through the study so far? Your mind should go back to 1 Peter 2.23. It's almost the exact same wording that when we describe Christ and his suffering. It's almost the exact same. But remember, at the end of it, he says, and walk in this way. In what way? In the way of Christ. This is what it says. When he was reviled... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself um, to him who judges justly. 1 Peter shows us Jesus the example and how Jesus lived, and we are commanded to live like Jesus. And why was Jesus able to not revile in return? Why was Jesus able not to return evil for evil? It gives us the cause there. Because he judged in him who judges justly. Do not is a command. This not returning evil for evil, it's not a if you can. It is a command by God to us. Do not repay evil for evil. Who does evil? Who desires to do evil in the Bible? Look at John 8:44 on the screen. You are of the father of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. You don't have to be your own defender. God has got you. Why was Jesus able to endure the suffering? Because he trusted in God who judges justly. but to respond with evil is of the devil. Responding with evil or reviling is to practice sin. And you might say to me, well, pastor, you don't understand why I acted this way. Look, your excuse is probably totally legit. You probably have a very valid reason for why you responded that way. But even though you're honest and you give me an honest reason, it's still inexcusable. And it's practicing sin. 1 John 3, 9 says this, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Responding in sin is a practice of sinning. For God's God's seed God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are children of God, who are the children of God, uh, the, who are the children of devil, the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. We're talking about being persecuted and having the eyes of the world on you. You do not have the right to respond because when you respond, you're defaming the name of Jesus. When you respond in sin, respond in righteousness. You know what Jesus did? Jesus blessed others. He blessed those who were persecuting him to do this means you have to die to self if you want to walk in the, the same way Jesus walked, if you want to walk in that model. And look, we get to live in, in confidence. We get to live confidently that we don't have to be our own defender. We are liberated from our need to vindicate ourselves by acting vindictively towards someone else who's wronged us. You know why? Because we, ju- we, we trust a God who does what? What? Judges justly. Live with the confidence that you know what God wants you to do. What does God want you to do in this situation? It's clear in your text. Look at verse 9. And there's a promise for this. He wants you to bless. Verse 9, bless for this you were called, that you might obtain a blessing. Here's a promise. Now, we don't know what side of the grave we get it, And it may never be super evident that this is why you're being blessed in this moment. But when you bless and you're persecuted, God promises that you will receive a blessing. You will receive a blessing. And I just want to say this over and over and over and over. Christians should never be surprised when suffering comes it's a popular theology that says that it's not for believers to suffer. Then God's wasting his breath with this, isn't he? Because this whole book, most of the New Testament is telling us how to live in suffering. Let's look at verse 10. And we're gonna see the life of blessing defined. For whoever desires to love life sees good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This comes, verse 10 and 12, come directly from Psalm 34, 12 through 16. And we've talked about this a little bit. It's it's important to understand how, like this is a Jew, right? A first century Jew. It's important to understand their culture a little bit, to understand how they use scripture. Well, every boy and girl who went through school were required to, to memorize the Psalms. And how the uh, rabbis then would teach in synagogue and in the streets, what they would do is they would quote part of a psalm, and then it was the response of the congregants gathered to finish the psalm. That's how this was done. And Peter is a teacher. He's in the place of a rabbi acting this way. And the reader, if they were Jewish, would be able to pick this up and do this. And we're going to look, starting in verse 17. Or I'm sorry, I didn't tell you what I was doing. Psalm 34, 17, because it starts in verse 12, and we've already read that part. When the righteous cry for help, so this this is where their minds would go, okay? They would finish this psalm. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many of the afflictions are the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Oh, now we're starting to move into a messianic psalm. That's a psalm talking about Jesus. He keeps all of his bones and not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servant and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Now that's interesting. So we we find that the one who operates in this way of the life of blessing from our text, that he will be redeemed, he will not be forgotten by the Lord, and he uh, he will be heard when he prays. The one who doesn't, he's promised a curse, and that curse is that he's going to be wiped off the face of the earth. And all who do not believe in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, in the last days will be wiped off the face of the earth and and tormented in a place called hell. He'll, They'll be forgotten by God, it says. Peter's quotation rolls directly into a messianic psalm of deliverance. And what's really amazing is we're not doing it just for sake of time and but next week, this is like Peter's, Peter's using this as a primary text for what he's saying because once he gets out of the application of this, he's about to roll directly into the afflicted Jesus. And we'll, we'll pick that up next week. He's using this Old Testament passage to shape his argument. But the life of blessing just to sum it all up, is to walk in holiness as Christ walked. So let's look at uh, the last of our passage real quick. We're going to honor Christ with your life, with our lives. Verse 13 Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, honor Christ as Lord, as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet, again, you've you got to underline this. How are we to make this defense in our persecution? Gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, So don't be surprised if you're slandered. It says, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ uh, may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that be the will of God, than for doing evil. It is sometimes God's will that we suffer for doing good. Most Christians in the world live in a situation where they have to be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is within them. One in eight Christians live in countries where they may face persecution. Thank God that we live in America. According to Forbes, this article was written in 2022, on average, 12 churches... Or Christian buildings a day are attacked throughout the world. That's just on average. That's not a high day. On average, 12 Christians a day are unjustly arrested. That same article goes on to say every day, 13 Christians again, the average is that they are killed for their faith. This is in 2022. Peter, Peter, did you not know that Christians are being persecuted and killed? How could you say, who is there to harm us if we're zealous for what is good? Apparently a lot of people, right? Like, there's a lot of people willing to do this. you got to remember that Peter, at this point, he'd already spent time in prison. Peter was in prison the day that James, his friend, was executed, Peter would have been executed as well uh, if he wasn't delivered by an angel. Peter is fully aware that Christians are being persecuted. That's why he says verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. How in the world can we have no fear? How in the world can we not be troubled by persecution? Because there's a promise of blessing. Because we, we trust in him who judges justly. Feels like an impossible ask on Peter's part. He says, to honor Jesus in your heart. I don't think he's saying don't have human emotions. I think he's saying don't let those fears be greater than your willingness to honor Jesus. Um, I spent the week reading stories about people who were persecuted. And one of the stories is of a theologian. He's not, he he was alive not long. Um, He was during the time of Martin Luther, so in the 1500s. And um, he starts preaching salvation by faith alone. His name's Balthazar Hubmeyer, if you care. But he's thrown into prison, and he's tortured horribly. He's put on the rack, and he recants after days of torture. He recants. And he just feels miserable for, for recanting. He hurt, he stopped, he didn't honor God in his heart. It, so he was gonna have to write a letter to be read in public about his recantation, that he was a liar, Jesus isn't the only way to heaven. And um, so instead what he does is he writes beautifully about what he does believe. And because of that, he's put back into prison. And he's put in a tower, and he's tortured for days. He refuses to recant. Because of his refusal to recant, they killed his wife. They drowned her. And they took him to the the stake to be burned. While he was being burned, while, while they were tying him up, He's praying to God for his persecutors. He's praying to God that God would forgive them. And he, like all the saints that you read these stories, they they have this similar plea, the same plea that Jesus had on the cross. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. into your hands I commit my spirit. You know why? Because he trusted in a God who judged justly. As the smoke overtook him, he continued to pray for them. One of his friends, uh, George Blair as he was being led to his death, the same death, he was praying for the people and he was preaching salvation by faith alone. And so it had such an effect on those standing by that they actually cut his tongue out. And even with his tongue cut out, he continued to preach and he continued to pray. God used the death of these men, the death of these women, as the seed that he grew his church out of. Everywhere where saints have died for the faith, the church has flourished. Honor God in your heart. We use this passage to make a defense as the the, the logic for for, for um the, the things we believe about God, and whether we believe in a six day creation or an old earth creation, whether we believe in, uh, uh, we 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 use it we use it as a, a to put our feet on for for apologetics about our faith, and that's fine. But that is not what this is talking about. This is talking about making a defense for the hope of Jesus Christ that's in you, when the time comes, and you have to be prepared. And during your suffering, while you make a defense, it's key that you do it with gentleness and respect. So if that kid comes up to you in class and acts like you're an idiot for believing in Jesus, you don't return reviling for reviling. You answer with gentleness and respect. If your boss, if your coworker uh, treats you the same way, if you're fired, you don't injure for injury. You answer with gentleness and respect about the hope that is within you. Because when you die to yourself, others will find life. If and when you're challenged by your faith, challenged, your, you find your faith challenged, you certainly get to be resolute. You certainly get to be confident. You certainly get to be stern about what you believe. But what's the only condition that we're given here? With gentleness and respect, not returning evil for evil. A great example of giving a defense for the hope that's inside of you is Martin Luther. This is the last thing I'll say today. October 31st is a big day in church history. October 31st, 1517. Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg in Germany. These these theses they challenged the Catholic teaching that salvation was found through the Pope. Salvation was found through Mary. Salvation could be bought if. You could pay indulgence for your sins. There was an old saying, every time a, the, a coin in the copper rings, a soul from purgatory flings. So if your aunt, your uncle, your husband's a horrible person, just go give some money to the church and then they can go to heaven. Luther believed that at one point. Then he starts reading the book of Romans and he finds that salvation is by faith alone. For Luther's position, he was imprisoned. He was excommunicated from the church. He lost his job. He had to stand trial for heresy. And uh, a trial for heresy is a big deal. That exact same trial 100 years before, for the very same things that he was confessing, two men were burned at the stake. Luther preached salvation was by faith alone and not by works, and it could not be bought. Luther made a defense to the papacy. He was ready to give a defense to the papacy. He was ready to give a defense while he was on trial. He went and made defenses to congregations for the reason for the hope that was within him of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only way to heaven. He clearly and articulated articulately showed from Scripture that salvation was by faith alone. Nobody cares about what you feel. Church, you need to understand this. Don't don't come at the world with going, I feel like the Bible says. You're not authoritative. The Word of God is authoritative, and the Word of God is clear. That salvation is found in faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone. It's only known through the Scriptures alone, and it's for the glory of God alone. Find it in the Word. Learn it for yourself. And when the time comes, don't worry about it. Don't, don't, don't worry that you don't know enough because what we're told is that the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, I go away so that I'll send a better one, and this better one is the Holy Spirit, and he indwells us and he empowers us, and he tells us that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, that the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, when the time comes, he will empower you to give a defense. But don't expect that if you have an empty Well find it, articulate it. Luther was willing to suffer for doing good. Luther was not promised he would be delivered. But because he was willing to suffer to do good, it sparked a reformation, the greatest outpouring of the Holy Spirit in world history. And it moved, it crawled all the way across Europe. Europe hundreds of thousands of people died for this confession of salvation by faith alone and everywhere people died more and more and more people popped up we live in an upside down kingdom where god uses the things that look weak to the world for his strength it looks weak to not fight back it looks weak to die it looked weak for the king of glory to come to earth and die on a cross But three days later, he rose again, and there was an empty tomb. And because he died, life came to the world. The blood of the saints, it's the seed of the church. It's it's what God has used throughout church history and what God is using today to spread his gospel message. So what defense should you be ready to make? you should be ready, you should be prepared, you should be training your children to testify to the salvation that is freely offered in Jesus Christ alone, that when you're called upon and that when they're called upon, they will be ready and they will be prepared to make that defense. For it is, verse 17, better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. We need to be sure that we don't divorce our words from our actions. We need to do good. And we need to be sure not to divorce our actions from our words. We are to be a witness in word and in deed, as this passage shows us. One of the most misquoted individuals in church history is a man named Francis of Assisi. Some of you will recognize the quote that says, always be preaching the gospel but when necessary use words I think he would be broken hearted if he knew how that quote has been used for believers to not share the gospel. What you need to know about this man who said that thing that people take as a rally cry to not share the gospel just to be nice people is he went from town to town and he preached the gospel he was always preaching the gospel but he also made sure that his life matched his words and that's what he's calling you to do We need to be ready to make a defense. And while making a defense, we will make it null and void if we return sin for sin. We need to be a people who live for God and die to self because death in us will be the work that God uses to bring life in others. If you will, bow your heads with me.